how bad are the inaccuracies of police work on television? <laughs> I sometimes find myself yelling at my screen. <laughs> you got to tell me about the dumbest criminal you've ever encountered. So, so many to choose from. Yeah. One time it, it took me 27 kicks to get through a door. <laughs> the first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Okay, you were just listening to a cop. That was Sergeant Adam Planninga, and he's written a book that I'll bet you haven't read. It is 400 Things Cops Know. He also wrote Police Craft. I picked this book up because I work with law enforcement a lot, and I saw this and I thought, this is intriguing. I 400 Things Cops Know. And you know what? There are some great stories in here and some things that are not common sense. So I had to track him down and get him in here to do this podcast. And we talk about some things that I think you're going to really find interesting. We talk about body cams and what they really think about that. We talk about tasers and how they make the decision to use those or not. We talk about something that cops call the kill zone, where not to park your car. And we talk about the 90-10 rule. And then I ask the question we all want to know the answer to. How do you really get out of a ticket once they've pulled you over? And there is an answer. You're going to want to hear this one. We're going to start in 40 seconds. I'm sitting here with Sergeant Adam Planninga. I have to tell you, there was a lot of my life that if I'd ever thought that I would be sitting down talking to a cop on purpose, that I would have never believed it. <laughs> <laughs> a checkered past. Yeah, I made some decisions early on. So this is a good thing. You've written a book called 400 Things Cops Know. What made you write this book? I was an English major in college, so yep. I've always had the writing bug. And law enforcement is just a... A profession where there's just so much to it. There's so many interesting angles and there's so much about the job that I just found just flat out fascinating. So over the years, I just, if I found something interesting, I just scribble it down in a notebook or later at my house. And after a while, I had sort of a lot of, a lot of stuff and I thought, oh, maybe I have something here. So I tried to put together in some, in some order and it worked out reasonably well. Do you ever get a chance to watch Dr. Phil? I have. And I got to tell you, um, especially as a new patrolman. Um, I didn't have kids at the time. And I'd be called to houses where there'd be a family trouble. There'd be a parent with a kid that was out of control. And they call me as a, 
to the cop and I come in and they'd look to me for answers. And uh, I, I remember on one of your shows, you were talking about dealing with kids who uh, are out of control and taking everything out of their room but their bed. Commando parenting. Commando parenting and then making the kid earn that back. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm going to hang on to that like a drowning man. That's going to be my go-to advice. And uh, I think it, uh, it was very helpful going into those homes. Oh, um, good. People were receptive to that. I can tell you, at Dr. Phil, we bleed blue. We are all about supporting law enforcement. In fact, we have a program called Behind the Badge where we go all over the country. I've been to New York all the way to Skid Row, L.A. because I don't cotton much to all this bashing of police officers. So we started this program called Behind the Badge where we really have tried to introduce America to the men and women behind the badge and who they really are and that they're people and mothers and fathers and some of the great things they do in the community. And it has been one of the most popular programs that's woven throughout the year that we've ever done. So we continue to do that. It's been a really great teachable moment in America for people to learn really who's behind the badge. Yeah, I saw um, a part of a clip where you were walking the beat with a couple of New York City cops. Yeah. I like those guys. They had their act together. Yeah, they were really great. I enjoyed doing that. Let's talk about this book, 400 Things Cops Know. So teach me what cops know. When I read this book, I thought, if I knew somebody that was getting ready to go on the street and be a cop, I would send them this book to keep them out of trouble, to keep them alive. Because some of these things in here are absolutely about a cop going home alive at the end of a shift, right? Yeah. I've had the good fortune over the years of having uh, great field training officers, great supervisors, great training training officers. And, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff in that book, I didn't sort of magically figure it out on my own. I've learned it from watching other cops. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm pretty good at is taking good notes when uh, smart cops do smart things. So yeah, it was sort of an accumulation of other people's wisdom, and I was able to put it together. So... When you wrote this, I guess the first publisher you went to just snapped it up and published it right away, right? Oh, I had uh, stunning <laughs> success early yeah. on, like most fledgling writers. No, I, uh, it was tough sledding at first. I approached uh, 90 different literary agents and was turned down. Uh, they didn't find me uh, nearly as fascinating as I find myself, <laughs> yeah. which is always a bummer. And the 91st guy did due diligence, but we couldn't quite make a, uh, a deal happen. So I found a small independent publisher that had previously put out another law enforcement title uh, called 101 Road Patrol Tales, which was written by a former uh, chippy. Yeah. And I thought, well, if they're interested in this book, maybe they'd be interested in mine and got up with them. And we're, we've been pals ever since. Well, they did a good job. Let's talk about some of the 400 things. What do you think is the most important one in the whole book? I think that especially these days when there is a lot of tension between the police and society, that uh, the passage in the book about being polite and professional, the passage in the book about, you know, you come into a home and maybe someone's committed a crime, maybe there's some sort of dysfunction, and, you know, the parent, for instance, is uh, he's out of work and he doesn't know how he's going to make it. And there are some cops, particularly younger cops, who... We'll talk down to that guy. 
you know, and the only thing he has going for him is his dignity, and you're trying to take that away from him. And, uh, and that's not right, you know. We have an obligation to be decent to people, and we don't always, uh, we're not always uh, holding up our part of the bargain. You said that oftentimes people who need you the most are also the ones that hate you the most. Why is that? Well, if you look at uh, you look at police calls for service, a lot of them are coming from sort of lower socioeconomic neighborhoods, housing projects, uh, places where there's a lot of crime. And there are people there who aren't necessarily receptive to the police. Sometimes you feel like you're a soldier in sort of enemy territory. And, you know, I think there's various reasons for that. Uh, some of them may be criminals, and they don't want to see you because you don't let them have their way. They want to commit crimes. You want to stop them from committing crimes. Some of them may have legitimately been wronged by the police at some point. But I think they're, they're a group of people that just sort of see you as a uniformed officer as part of the system. And they feel like the system is kind of out to get them, that the deck is stacked against them. And as a cop, you're sort of the most visible embodiment of that system. So you're kind of walking in um, kind of behind the ball a little bit. What do you think the attitude is among cops these days, just kind of inside the station house? Because, look, there's been a lot of controversy. We see Ferguson. We see all these different things that have gone on. And cops have taken a bad rap. And there have been some bad cops. But what's the attitude on the force? What's it like inside the station house? What do you guys talk about? How do you feel about all of this? In general, well, I think that um, you know they talked about the the Ferguson effect, um, sort of nationwide, where there seemed to be sort of a slowdown. Cops weren't making as many proactive stops uh, as they had because you know your average street cop thinks, well, why do I need to go through this hassle? You know, I don't want to be sued. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm just going to do sort of the bare minimum possible, right, um, and get through the day. Um, and that's not you know that's not the way it should be. Uh, the police officer has a job to do no matter what's happening in society. And there's some people have said there's a war on police. And I think that you, if you were a, uh, you know, if you've been a cop in Baton Rouge where officers were killed, if you're a cop in Dallas where there was a, a number of officers who were straight up assassinated, um, you could very well feel that keenly. But my hope is that for most cops, it's business as usual. Even if the public is criticizing you, uh, you have a job to do, and you should do it. Do you wear a body cam? The San Francisco Police Department does have body cams. We got them a little over a year ago. You think it's a good idea? I do. I think it's a great idea. You know, when you're when you're on camera, you know, cops people tend to be on their best behavior, and that's you know that's what you want. You want cops in their best behavior. Yeah. Uh, it's not a uh, you know it's not a cure all. There's some limitations to the camera. Um, doesn't tell the whole story, but it's a good tool. There's been diversity training in the police department. Has it been received well? <laughs> uh, I would say that the typical police attitude towards diversity training is a little skeptical. Um, I think it could probably be summed up by something I heard an officer say once. He said, why do we need this diversity training? Just treat everyone with respect. What else is there? Um, and I kind of get where he's coming from, but especially when you are uh, policing in communities of color, um, when 
especially if you're in a neighborhood where the police have a troubled relationship, you know, the wrong word said at the wrong time can be like a, a spark in a, uh, in a coal mine. It can set off an explosion. Um, so, you know, and there, there's sort of practical reasons for diversity training. I remember I went to a training once where they talked about uh, speakers who are Indonesian might refer uh, to gender um, in both male and female terms. So if uh, someone who is from Indonesia says, the suspect took my purse and she ran that way, they may not be talking about a female suspect, it may be a male. So those are things you need to know, um, practical things from a law enforcement perspective. You break this down in terms of things that cops know. You talk about some things that you know about shots fired. One of the things you talk about is the spray and pray technique. Yes. What's that? Well, uh, and one of the things you learn as a cop is um, if it can be hard to hit something, even that's not very far away from you, unless you practice sort of your sound shooting fundamentals, which is, you know, sight, uh, grip, and uh, stance. Um, a lot of your street criminals, they don't go to the range, and they may have learned how to shoot a gun by watching movies where you have sort of the sideways cant and yeah. um, people just going trigger happy. So spray and pray is what you get when you have people that are untutored and they shoot and the bullets can go anywhere, um, which is, I mean, it's not a laughing matter because, you know, bullets don't have names on them, as they say. So yeah. you could have a person that's just going about their business and they get hit, um, you know, and they're completely innocent and it's a senseless crime. When I see video of a cop that decides to shoot someone an officer decides okay life's in danger someone's life's in danger so i'm going to use deadly force i never see them shoot once right i see them empty their gun or they shoot like six seven eight times is that the training if you're going to shoot shoot what's the rule so there's no sort of uh hard cap and the bullets you fire, you are trained to, at the very basic level, uh, shoot until um, your target is, is down, is incapacitated, is not able to fight anymore. Um, and I'm not a subject matter expert in shootings. I've talked to some people who are, but um, the conventional wisdom is when you're in a shooting, uh, it's about as high stress of a situation as you can be in. And there's all sorts of uh, physiological effects going on. Your sight is affected. Your hearing is affected. They call it auditory exclusion. Your sense of time is distorted, where you may think something took 20 seconds and it took one. You ask most officers how many shots they fired after a shooting, and most of them have no earthly idea. And the other thing they train you is, you know, in Hollywood, someone gets shot and they fall down. In real life, uh, bullets don't knock you over. Um, the only way a bullet's going to immediately stop someone if it hits them in the brain or in the upper spinal column. Other than that, people are still a threat. You hit someone in the arm, you hit them in the leg, they're still a threat. The, uh, the older of the two Boston Marathon bombers, uh, Tamerlan, he had, uh, he had nine bullets in him and he was still fighting. So you don't sort of shoot and then look to see what happened and assess. You make sure that the target is down. Um, before you, before you proceed. So, you shoot to criteria. You shoot till they're down. Whether it's four bullets, five bullets, six bullets, eight bullets, whatever. Right. You say the shotgun's a great equalizer. 
Yeah, the, uh, you know, your average criminal is used to seeing handguns around. Um, but there's something about the shotgun, which is just a ferocious weapon. Uh, there's something about how it looks, about how it sounds when you are racking around. You will, uh, and I've had this happen to me, you will point your handgun at someone and give them an order, and they won't that be that impressed with you. But you take out the shotgun, now you have people's attention. Yeah. So a lot of it is just, um, you know, people respond to that more. People respond to a long gun. You point a handgun at somebody and they don't pay much attention. Yeah. Jeez. You have... Uh, you would get my attention. <laughs> I would hope that it would get any reasonable person's attention. But I guess some of these people are kind of jacked up at the time, right? Yeah, people who are, uh, you know, experiencing some sort of mental health crisis, uh, people who are... Who, who have PCP thrown, uh, flowing through their system. Yeah. Describe untrained but justified. So there's a couple of different categories of use of force. Um, there's trained techniques, um, there's, uh, which is when you do exactly as you're trained in the academy, just like you were conducting a simulation. Um, there's a dynamic application of a trained technique where you do what you're supposed to do in the academy, but maybe... You put a little extra English on it and um, you try to take someone down and they hit the back of the wall just because you did it forcefully. The category of untrained but justified is when you sort of, you sort of go off menu. You know, someone's strangling you and they're on top of you and you can't reach uh, your sidearm or your baton. And maybe your radio is broken and it's a distance away from you. You know, there have been cops who have... Uh, just taking a bite out of that guy's ear. Um, there have been cops who try to gouge that guy's eye. There's, uh, it's not a fair fight. You do what you have to do to, uh, to survive. Have you ever been afraid for your life on the job? Uh, I have. Um, I find that most, in most cases, things happen so quickly that there's not a lot of time to be afraid. But then afterwards, you look back and say, wow, that was, uh, well, that was quite something. Yeah. Yeah. What is bizarre land? So bizarre land is the uh, is the fourth category of use of force. Um, that's when you are in a physical altercation and you do something that is just in its own galaxy. No one trained you to do that. It's not a good idea. You you know you grossly overreacted to a threat, and that's when cops get in trouble. When you have a, well, why would you do that moment? Yeah, like what? For instance, you are uh, approaching someone, um, and this is actually in San Francisco, we're having a debate about whether to arm officers with tasers. Uh, there have been some instances where uh, an officer will approach, say, an 11-year-old girl, and maybe she's been being a little mouthy, and out comes a taser, and she gets zapped. That is bizarre land. You're tasing an 11-year-old girl because she got mouthy. Yeah, but that happens. It does. I mean, we see it. It makes the news, right? Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that an 11-year-old girl can't be a threat, but one of your philosophies as a cop is to always use the minimum amount of force necessary to control a situation. The opposite of that is bizarre shit land. What is the most awkward situation that you have to deal with? I'll tell you what would be for me in a minute, but... It seems to me that if you're in a situation where you're a big guy, you're a cop, you're armed, you got a baton, you got all of this stuff, 
and you've got a small person like an 11-year-old girl that is absolutely out of control, they're going to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt somebody else. What do you do? You well, put your hands on them. That's a problem, right? I mean, that could be trouble. You could hurt them. What do you do? Well, that's probably going to be one of those situations, no matter what you do, you're going to look like you're <laughs> yeah. in the wrong. Yeah. It's not going to be pretty. But in a situation like that, um, you try to get as many officers as possible, and then you each take a limb. You know, someone controls the right arm. Someone controls the left arm. Now you got four cops ganging up on an 11-year-old girl. Right. Now that looks bad. But in a situation like that, the more cops you have, the better odds are that you're, no one's going to have to use any more force than that. It's basically, mm. and you're, you know, you're just kind of wrapping them up um, to be restrained and to be taken to, you know, to a mental health center or what have you. But, right. you know, sometimes people say, you know, there were seven cops there. Why did it take seven cops to take one person into custody? And, you know, usually the answer to that is, well, because we didn't have eight yeah. You know, the more cops, the better it is for the suspect and the better it is for the officer because you don't want to get into some kind of one-on-one protracted fight. Um, that's where people get hurt. Do you like tasers? Is that a good option? I think it is. Uh, we had them on the uh, the Milwaukee Police Department. I was a cop there for uh, many years. And there was a study that came out recently that uh, I think it's from the National Institute of Justice. And it was something like 99.7% of taser deployments resulted in only uh, minor injuries to a suspect. You know, the taser in and of itself doesn't cause injuries, but you know, if you're tased and you fall, you could get, yeah. get banged up. I mean, that's a percentage I'm very comfortable with. I mean, there have been some uh, high-profile incidents where people have been tased and, and they've died, and whether that's because of the taser, because they had an enlarged heart because of cocaine use, I don't know. Yeah. But you play the odds and the percentages, and it's a good tool. I think that there have been instances where if cops had a taser, they maybe wouldn't have had to use their firearm. It's a non-lethal way to stop them, right? It is. It, uh, it shoots out these prongs of sort of incapacitating voltage. And uh, when, when, we, uh, when we had them on the Milwaukee Police Department, uh, they used to ask for cops to volunteer and be tased. So, you know, so you know, so you know, know what it's like. You get, everyone gets pepper sprayed in the academy, so you know what it's like. And then if you're going to have a taser, you should know what it's like. You should be able to feel what you're dishing out. And there was, uh, there was one guy, and I would never name him, but, uh, you know, when, when you get tased, you sort of you lose control of your muscles, and you're sort of not in control of your own body for a second. And people say funny things when they're tased. Uh, so when this guy was tased, and he's in a room of cops, you know, sort of, hard guys he uh he called out for his mom yeah and then he went down and then uh and then no one <laughs> no one volunteered after that because <laughs> nobody wanted to be that guy yeah no kidding i'm sure he lived that down real quickly yeah that's the kind of thing that stays with you yeah i guess so talk to me about thugs and liars so uh one of the things about thugs that uh that please take note of is um what we call the the felony fur. The felony fur is, and we of course saw this more in Milwaukee, where the weather was uh, pretty bleak. But it's a uh, it's a winter jacket with a fake fur collar. Right. And we just found that there seemed to be an inordinate number of criminals who wore that jacket. So it's sort of like their uniform. And of course, there'd be law-abiding persons that would wear that jacket, but it just become sort of part of the criminal uniform. Another thing we noticed about um, about thugs is when you would uh, you would do a traffic stop, 
and you'd see the driver uh, before you approached uh, light up a cigarette, you would call that the the felony smoke because he probably had a uh, revoked license, maybe he had a warrant for his arrest, maybe he had some drugs in the car. He knew he was getting arrested. So he's thinking, I'm going to get one good last drag in before the boys take me. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. The felony smoke. The huh? felony smoke. So how can you tell if somebody's in a gang? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, some of the gangs, it's as simple as, you know, as their colors. Um, where I police in San Francisco, you have the, uh, the Nortano gang and the Sereno gang. The Sereno's wear blue, sometimes the L.A. Dodger stuff. And the Nortano's wear red. And that's, you know, that's sometimes the only basis they use to shoot each other. Yeah. Uh, you have your gang signs, you have your gang turf, you have your gang tattoos, um, and that stuff changes a lot. So you have to, if you really want to be a student of the game, you have to keep up on it. If you're in an area where you're on turf and a cop walks up to three or four gang members on the street, are you safe? Are they going to not mess with a cop and bring hell down on them? I think some of that depends if they know the cop, if he has a relationship with them. Um, you know, if you're a cop that pays attention to your sector, you're already going to know a lot of these guys. You're going to know their names. You're going to know what they drive. You're going to know their street name. And, you know, every time you approach them, it's not going to be sort of friction. You may just have casual conversations with them because you're trying to kind of feel them out and they're trying to kind of feel you out. Um, so it doesn't always have to be, you know, you can be talking about sports. You can be talking about the weather. Uh, it doesn't always have to be a, an arrest situation. But if it was an arrest situation, you never want to send one cop in to, to three suspects. Those are bad odds. Is there a code among the gangs that the last thing you want to do is shoot a cop? You know, generally speaking, it's, it's pretty bad business because um, you know you're going to have the whole force on you. Um, I would imagine the clearance rate for homicides when the cop is a victim is extraordinarily high. You know, it's, it's spare no resource. Um, you know, I think that, generally speaking, the folks that are shooting at cops are people that are uh, have no expectation of going home, uh, or yeah. people that are in some sort of mental health crisis who have nothing to lose. Let's talk about this from the standpoint of the citizen. I mean, what can you tell people about how to know when they're being cased or if somebody's getting ready to harm them in some way? Mm -hmm. What are the tip-offs? Well, the first key is you got to have your head on a swivel. You know, you have to look up from your, from your cell phone. Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, one of the ways you can, one of the indicators of someone that's up to no good is, you know, most sort of normal folks, most law-abiding people, if they're walking down the street, they do so with a sense of purpose, right? I mean, they're going from point A to point B. They're going to the store, to work, or to the coffee shop. Criminals who are just hanging out and looking for marks, they move in a completely different fashion. It's sort of this slow kind of, I don't have anywhere to be kind of stroll. They're constantly looking around. They're looking to the left, to the right. They're looking behind them. You know, they're looking for the police, they're looking for potential marks. It's, it's pretty noticeable. And then, you know, it's as simple as if someone's crossing the street towards you when there's really no particular reason to do so. It's people who uh, will approach you and ask, a couple of precursor questions to robberies, one of which frequently is, do you have the time? 
criminals like to ask people, do you have the time? Because for look, one, yeah. you look down, yeah. you might be able to see if you have an expensive watch that you're interested in. Um, you're a little off your guard. Um, and they can kind of, you know, if, if someone doesn't look at their watch, they think, well, maybe this person is going to give me some trouble. Maybe this person is, is on to me. So they might, they might move on to the next person. From a psychological standpoint, I always tell people that it's the element of surprise that they say, I don't know how I got mugged. And I say it's the element of surprise because if you're walking down the street, you don't think about coming up and robbing somebody. So that's not the first place your head goes, right? Right. You're walking down the street. Somebody comes up and says, hey, what time is it? Your normal reaction is to be polite and say, well, it's and then you get hit in the head. Right. So they use that to get the jump on you, to get the element of surprise. We go to Kansas City a lot at Thanksgiving because they turn the lights on the Country Club Plaza there every Thanksgiving. And Robin and I were out late one night, and sure enough, like you say, there's a guy walking on the other side of the street, and it's dark. There's just the two of us out there. And he comes walking across diagonally, and he'd just been kind of bumping along over there. And then he comes across the street diagonally, and he looked pretty rough. Yeah. And he got about halfway across the street, walking right towards us, and I just said, stop, walk away. And Robin, like, what, what, what the hell's going on? The guy just stopped in his tracks and looked at me, and I said, are you deaf? Walk away. Mm -hmm. And the guy turned around and walked off. I guarantee you that guy was coming over there to rob us. Yeah. I got the element of surprise, and he walked away. I wouldn't rob me on a street. You look like you could easily brook no nonsense. Well, I wouldn't pick me. Yeah, and you know, criminals I'd are looking- I'd go look for Barney Five or something. <laughs> criminals are looking for easy targets. When they see someone that's a hard target, they think, I'm going to try someone else. Yeah. I was in Pittsburgh working on a trial. So I went jogging down by Three Rivers. You know, you go down, you run along the river walk. And I'm jogging down there. I got on a T-shirt and some biker shorts. Mm -hmm. And I'm running along the river. And this guy jumps out from under the bridge, says, give me your wallet. <laughs> I stop. And I've got no pockets. Where would it possibly be? I got no pockets. I just looked at him and said, are you an idiot? Look at me. Do I look like I've got pockets? I did a 360. I thought, I got no pockets. And he just stood there and stared at me. And I said, look, you see that fountain down there? He looked down there. I said, I'm going to run down here around that fountain. And when I come back, your better be gone. I like that. Okay. So I just jogged on off. I looked over my shoulder and he's standing there staring at me like, what just happened? Maybe that was his first robbery. Maybe. So I came running back. I was going to throw him in the river or something, but he was gone. So I've had two potential muggings, but nobody's ever gotten close enough to get their hands on me. I like to think that last guy maybe realized he wasn't very good at this and gave up his life yeah. of crime and is now yeah. doing something semi-productive. And he was about the size of my wife and he didn't have a weapon. I just thought he figured, I'm a ask mugger. Can I have your wallet? I mean, he wasn't even menacing. He was like, <laughs> would, it, I... would it trouble you too much if yeah, I asked for the your favor wallet? of your wallet? That's a good tip, though. They're not moving with purpose. Right. Because they want to take a while and let targets come by. 
Yeah, and you know, we are a polite society, but you know, you and any sort of self-defense expert will tell you this: you got to listen to your gut. If your gut tells you this is wrong, then it probably is. You know, if some person who's being really friendly offers to help you inside your apartment building with your groceries, and some kind of you know the hairs in the back of your neck are going up, say no. It's okay. Yeah. You say there are chintzy reasons for stopping people. Yeah. What are they and why do you do it? Uh, you know, the, the motor vehicle code for most states is impossibly long. And there are rules that, even as a cop, I'm sure I'm not aware of. And if you want to uh, find a reason to pull a car over, you'll be able to find it. You know, maybe their light to their license plate is out. I mean, when's the last time I checked mine? I don't know. could be out right now. Um, or they have the fuzzy dice hanging from their mirror. Uh, or they don't signal when they change lanes. I mean, there's a million reasons. And most cops, um, when they are doing a traffic stop, they do it because, not because they're particularly passionate about everyone getting a light on their license plate, uh, but because they're using that as what's called a pretext stop to see if this person has warrants or maybe a weapon or drugs if they're of interest to the police. So, yeah, you'll pull someone over for something that's really minor, um, but you're hoping for a payoff. Like maybe they're wanted, you know, maybe they're wanted for murder. Uh, most of your worst criminals, they don't come to you. You have to go out and find them. It's like fishing? Yeah, it is. But you're, uh, you know, you're sort of selective, you know, if you have a choice between pulling over a gang of four young men in a car with, uh, you know, with neck tattoos or a station wagon full of kids that have, you know, Burger King hats on because they just came from a party, you're probably going to go with the former. You know, you, you yeah. play the odds. If someone yeah. looks like trouble, then you may want to get their business. that you described them as a gang, a gang of four guys in right. a car right. with neck tattoos. So they qualify. They do. I want to talk about something that you talk about in a book called Tactics and Hazards. And one of the things you said, why shouldn't we have a locked door behind us? Right. When you are, uh, when you're an officer and you go to, um, a residence or you go to an apartment complex, you know, a lot of them have the doors where you have to be buzzed through or, um, or someone has to open it for you. And you always have to, um, put a pair of handcuffs there to keep the door open because if you and your partner are in there and things go wrong and, um, you're fighting with the suspect, or suddenly the suspect's friends come down the hallway and you're in a big throwdown, you don't want a locked door standing between your backup and you. So you do what oh, you can Oh, somebody's coming to help you. Right. It's to let help in. I see. Mm -hmm. So if you get buzzed in, you prop that door open in case somebody needs to come. You do. I see. Yeah. I'd have never thought of that. If you ever see a set of handcuffs hanging off the iron grill to an apartment building, that's there's probably a cop inside. Yeah, it's, there's something going on. Although once in a while you have a cop It wasn't a fun who, date. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, who knows? But, yeah. uh, and once in a while you have a cop forget his handcuffs, so it might yeah. have to go back and get him. How do you prepare for a gunfight? You're taught in the police academy that you're always sort of in this constant state of suspicious readiness. You don't give people the benefit of a doubt. If you think that someone's armed, you're quick to do a pat-down search to make sure that you're all safe there. And you find yourself, uh, when you enter a room, just sort of unconsciously looking for uh, cover or concealment. You know, if shots ring out, where is the closest car engine block where I can take cover behind? You want to always be thinking tactically like that because 
uh, if someone starts shooting, it's sort of this oh moment, and you don't want to have sort of a blank slate. You want to have already sort of thought your way through that and be prepared. When you go to a domestic call, somebody calls domestic violence, you're going into a house or an apartment, it seems to me that's a highly dangerous situation. True? It is. I think if you talk to most cops, they'd say that the hairiest situations they've been in have been DV calls. Um, you know, you have, you have passions that are running high and reasons, re- reasons running low. Um, if you're in a house, you know, anywhere in the kitchen, there's probably half a dozen weapons there. You know, people in DVs have used, you know, knives against their partner, against the officers. Um, they've used a pot of scalding coffee. Um, you really have to be on guard. As an officer going into a situation like that, because I've seen these situations where you go into a house, the lights are off, there's a long hallway, there's different rooms and different doors, and you do go in because there's a victim in there somewhere. Right. How do you protect yourself in a situation like that? Obviously, somebody could step out of there with a shotgun. Somebody could step out of there with who knows? Do you have your gun drawn? What do you do? Usually if there's any indication that a weapon was used in the, the call that you're going to, then you'll have your gun out. Um, they teach you uh, in the academy and beyond uh, what they call room clearing techniques. So uh, you don't just sort of blunder in through a room. There's techniques you can use um, to sort of enter an attack, in a tactful way. And then you use, you know, you use as many cops as you need um, to make sure that the, that the scene's safe. And you don't automatically, you know, just because a call comes in that, say, the husband is battering the wife, um, it could be the case that uh, the wife is the actual suspect who gets arrested. So you don't pretend that you have the whole thing figured out before you really sit down and start investigating. I've seen officers come into a very dark restaurant, bar, go deep back in to it where there's trouble in the back. It just seems to me that a hundred different things could happen in that situation. I've always wondered why they don't light the situation up big time before they go in. You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I have been in situations myself where I've been in the exact situation you've described. And I've had my flashlight out and a couple other cops have their flashlights out. And then someone will say, uh, hey, genius, why don't you, you know, why don't you look for a light switch? <laughs> and then someone will turn it on. You know? Yeah, good thought. But you, uh, you know, you get used to responding to a lot of homes where the light bulbs are all burnt out or they don't work. That sometimes, yeah. as crazy as it sounds, that's not the first thing you think of. You think, well, I got my flashlight. I'm good. You're just trying to be self-sufficient. Right. There's a friend of mine that produces cops. So I've watched that show a lot. And it's interesting to me that in almost every episode where they go in a house, there's a guy sitting on the bed in the back bedroom, either with no shirt on or one of these strap shirts on, that looks up and is not the least bit surprised that there are two <laughs> cops in his bedroom. Where do they find these yes. guys? I mean, he's sitting there on his bed and he looks up, oh, uh, hi. Where do they find guys that he's not surprised that there's two cops in his bedroom? Just Have a, you noticed that? That's just a Wednesday night for that guy. Yeah, I know. These are not surprised. Yeah, of course I, they're here. Yeah, of course you're here. Well, you uh, you have a lot of frequent flyers 
as a cop, there are homes that you go to time and time again. And, you know, to the point where you look at the door and it's got all these chips and grooves in it from all the times the police have knocked on it hard with their baton. So, you know, yeah. oh, we've been here before. Yeah, you know you've been there before. Yeah. I guess it's just a select part of the society. I don't know. It's like every time there's a UFO sighting, there's a guy with an eat hat on. <laughs> like, he's the one doing the interview. It is the way of things. Yeah, it's the same guy that's sitting on the bed, I guess. You say there's a kill zone for these domestic situations about where not to park your car. Where do you not park your car? Yeah, so you uh, you never want to, and this, even if the call is utterly benign, you know, it's a it's a neighbor calling because their uh, their neighbor's dog is barking too loud. You never want to park right in front of the address you've been sent to, because if a suspect comes out, you're gonna be you'll be right in the kill zone. You won't have time to take cover. You won't have time to go forward or reverse, and you know. When you're a patrol cop, you walk into the ultimate unknown. Just because a call seems like it's nothing doesn't mean that it might not turn out to be one of the most violent nights of your life. So you always park and then approach on foot. That way you can sort of drink the whole scene in before you start knocking on doors. So where do you park? Uh, I usually want to be at least a couple houses away from wherever you're going to. Same side of the street? Yeah. In parallel? Yes. Do you go into the yards or do you stay on the sidewalk it kind of depends but usually uh, on the sidewalk unless there's uh, any sort of tactical information you've been given that would dictate otherwise i'm from texas what do you think about the open carry law where you carry a gun in plain sight mm -hmm. does that help or hurt you know that is that's a good question and i and i think a lot of cops kind of go back and forth on that um in california used to have it they uh, took it off the books not long ago. Um, you know, the old saw is a, an armed society is a polite society, and I, I think there might be something to that. Um, it'd be my guess that most of the people that are walking around with uh, handguns and holsters are probably not criminals advertising the fact that they're about to rob somebody. They're probably sort of your law-abiding folk. They just want people to know, you know, I'm armed. I would highly recommend you not mess with me. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I think one of the things that as a cop you are wary of is if you have um, a situation you're going to and um, someone's shooting at someone else, you don't know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is frequently. And there may be uh, a well-meaning citizen who has taken his gun out to try to stop a violent crime and there he is. And there's nothing, you know, people don't wear signs to say I'm the good guy. So, you know, my fear would always be, I don't know if this guy's a suspect, if he turns towards me um, and I've ended up, you know, delivering rounds, then, you know, that'd be, that'd be a nightmare. Um, so people really have to be smart about that. They have to realize that the cops aren't going to know. I mean, you know you're a good guy, but the cops aren't going to know that. We can't read minds. If you're in that kind of situation and the cops roll up on the scene, best thing to do is get your hands in the air, not be a threat. Right. Do exactly what the officers tell you to do. And, you know, even if you're an off-duty cop who has to take action, the cops may not know that you're, uh, you know, if you're, if they don't know you or if you're in a different town, they may not immediately recognize you as a, as a, a law enforcement officer also. So yeah. 
Same thing. You do what the cops tell you to do. What's the 90-10 rule? So the 90-10 rule, and I can't remember who told me this, but I like it, and I think it has legs. 90% of people are decent, you know, in the ways that count. Uh, 10% of people aren't. And as a cop, you deal with that 10% 90% of the time. I think one of the problems with that as an officer is it can, uh, it can sort of distort your, your, world, your worldview because you're dealing with the worst of the worst day in and day out. Um, and you start to think that, uh, that all people are like that. You know, people don't call the police when everything's going great. You know, they don't call the police when, um, you know, kids are playing soccer in the field and everyone's having fun. It's a healthy, energetic time. And someone just brought some, some cupcakes. They don't call the police and say, Hey, come on down. This is great. You're really going to enjoy this. Um, people call the police on the worst day of their life. So you have to be conscious of that. You can't let that sort of uh, sway how you, uh, how you view people. All right. This is an important question, so I want you to think about this. I want you to dig deep, and I want you to think about this hard. I will dig deep. Because this could be very life-changing for a lot of people. If you get pulled over in a traffic stop, what line of bull will get you out of a ticket? <laughs> All right, there's got to be something. You get pulled over, and they got you dead to rights. Okay, right. you're speeding. There's no question about it. They got you. Is there a silver bullet? Is there something you can say? Is there something you can do that's going to give you the best shot of getting out of the ticket? Uh, this may disappoint some folks, but the oh, short God. answer is is no. Um, Nothing? You know, you personally, I think people who are sort of upfront about what happened, who are honest, aren't trying to sort of run a game on me, you know, I... I respect that. I take that into account. Um, As you're writing the ticket. Well, not necessarily. Uh, there are, well, I, I can tell you this. One thing that one person told me, um, I pulled him over, and I think he had gone through a stop sign, a pretty good clip. And he said, I'm sorry, officer, but I really have to go to the bathroom. And this guy was, uh, he was squirming so visibly. He seemed so obviously uncomfortable that I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt and uh, I'm going to let him go because no one can act that well. And if he put one over on me, God bless him because he's, okay, a, he's now, an see, Oscar caliber actor. All right, that's helpful though. <laughs> that's good to yeah, know. Just pretend like you have to go to the bathroom. If he actually pissed his pants, would that help? Well, I didn't think it would be uh, uh, civilized to, to wait until he had actually soiled himself. Okay. I, uh, I let that guy go. Now, see, that's helpful. I feel like I'm delivering the wrong message here. <laughs> oh, that's good. You don't run a stop sign on purpose, or you don't go out and speed on purpose. And isn't law supposed to be based on good public policy, right? Absolutely. And isn't the speed limit supposed to be based on the natural flow of traffic? Yes. I feel like I'm walking into a trap right no, now. <laughs> no, If the natural flow of traffic in a stretch of road is 50... And somebody comes out and sticks up a sign that says 35, and that's not the natural flow of traffic there. And then so somebody comes by and they're doing 45, you can give them a ticket for 10 over. But if everybody's going 45 or 50, that's the natural flow of traffic in that area, right? I'm with you. Sometimes it's pretty arbitrary, right? Yeah, I think most officers, you know, they're not out to humbug, humbug people. 
Um, if someone uh, is maybe going a little faster than the speed limit, but they have a good driving record and they're upfront about what happened, you know, unless they're sort of specifically assigned to traffic enforcement, you know, odds are that person might get a break. It's probably not a good idea to say, do you know who I am? <laughs> that never works, right? Not once has that worked. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think some cops want people to say that just so they can show them how it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I know who you think you are. Sign right here. What's your view on racial profiling? There's been a lot of conversation about this. Law enforcement's gotten beat up about this a lot. What's your stance on this and stance on race relations? Well, you know, racial profiling is, is flat out wrong. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're a cop, one of the main philosophies you operate from is, you know, is equal enforcement of the law. And if you don't have that, if you're single out a select group, then, um, then the system doesn't work. It's, it's fundamentally unfair. I think that one of the, um, the issues that comes up is, say you have uh, an inner city neighborhood, and say it's predominantly black, um, and it has a lot of calls for service. People are calling the police, and they want you to come there because there's domestic violence or there's a shooting or something's going on. And so you tend to flood those areas with cops. And so you tend to, if you're making arrests, you tend to be making arrests of people of color because those are the people that live in those neighborhoods. You know, I've been, there've been times where I've arrested someone and they've said, you've only arrested me because I'm black. And I thought to myself, well, first of all, show me a white guy around here. And second of all, I'm sorry, but I arrested you because this person pointed to you and said, this guy just hit me in the face with a pistol, and uh, I'm sure that's the guy. One of the problems with race relations in this country is, you, you know, it's not like people are just making this up out of thin air, that there's a racial problem. You know, you, you, know, you go back to uh, Sheriff Bull Connor in Birmingham with the dogs and the hoses. Um, there was a police chief somewhere in Florida uh, as recently as 2014 who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, my own department in San Francisco, we had a, uh, a texting scandal where officers were found to have used texts that, that talked about white power and burning crosses. Um, so that, you know, it's very real. It's very prevalent. Um, and if you find that there is racial profiling, you have to, you have to go after that, you know, just like you would go after a, a virus. You have to go after it, go after it hard. We had a situation the Walter Scott case in North Charleston. Allegedly, the officer shot Scott while Scott was running away. Right. What's your position on that? Based on what you know, you weren't there, I understand. Sure. We know what we've been told. Well, I, as you might expect, I'm about as pro-cop as it gets, um, and I know that I am biased when it comes to situations like this. I'm far from objective. I want the officer's account to be true. I want it to be a good shooting. And I think it's really important to wait till all the facts come in. Um, but, you know, that being said, there are things that you see on the news that are so sort of visceral that they demand a response. And when I looked at that shooting, it looked to me like a straight-up assassination. I couldn't think of what could uh, possibly have justified that. And I think the courts felt the same way. I, he was, uh, the officer, uh, 
was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, convicted and I believe is in prison. A lot of times I've heard officers say, I gave a command and they didn't follow it. And I know there have been laws on the books where that can justify use of force. Mm -hmm. But if there's not a threat to the officer, fleeing a scene is not a capital offense, right? Certainly there's been no trial, there's been no conviction, but if somebody is fleeing a crime scene, should an officer shoot at the fleeing car? So we have, uh, we have rules in place to talk to that most, that speak to that most departments do. Uh, no, you don't shoot at someone just because they're fleeing. Um, there was a sort of a seminal court case, Tennessee versus Garner, that outlawed that, uh, uh, decades ago, the, the, you know, the, the circumstances under which you would shoot someone who is fleeing are so narrow um, and so specific, it would have to be something, for instance, like this suspect just shot at you. He just shot your partner, and now he's fleeing. And you have a reasonable belief that if you don't stop him right now, he is going to continue to kill people. In the absence of that, that's bad police work. Right. And generally speaking, shooting at a car, whether it's coming towards you or away from you, uh, it doesn't work. Um, you can shoot as a, at a car as many times as you want, and the odds of you stopping that car are slim. And if you hit the driver, yeah. all you've done is made this very dangerous missile coming at you pilotless. So, for instance, in our department, we do not, uh, we are not allowed to shoot at cars. Yeah, which is sensible to me. We talked about these neighborhoods that you get into sometimes where it's dangerous. They're high crime situations. If somebody gets lost in a hostile neighborhood, uh, maybe they're on foot, maybe they're driving or whatever, what do they do? What's the first thing you tell them to do? It's good to have sort of a healthy fear of a place that looks rough. Um, but generally speaking, if you are a law-abiding person who isn't a criminal yourself, you know, you're not in a gang, you're not a hitman, even if you wandered into a sort of a, a tough neighborhood, odds are you're going to be able to extract yourself okay. Um, I think sometimes people have these images of, uh, say, a housing project as this whole, this whole neighborhood is bad. There's nothing redeemable about this neighborhood. And that's also, I think, sort of a traditional police weakness. Sometimes we write off whole blocks as being bad. But generally speaking, if you're a citizen, um, you know, I would say if you're going to ask, them for, ask someone for directions, just sort of play the odds and as opposed to asking a group of folks that are shooting dice on the corner, you know, maybe ask a, sort of a, an older woman with kids, you know, um, they'll get you out of there. Well, if she's not handy, what do you do? Get a better app on your phone that will solve this problem. Yeah. Get your GPS, but you just try to look for a friendly face. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Just sort of yeah. common sense approach. Or a cop. Yeah. If you're passing a car and they flash their lights at you, will you stop? Uh, yeah, unless unless I'm, you know, if I'm going lights and siren to something high profile, sure. I can't. But yeah, in the absence of that, sure. If someone flags you down, if you're not... If you're just cruising and somebody flashes their lights at you, is that a sign to turn around and come yeah, back? Yeah, it usually is. Yeah, okay. if they need something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you'll do that? Yes. Okay. Well, that's what people need to know. If they're lost and they see a cop flash at them, and when they do that, Will you answer their questions or will you ask a bunch of questions? Well, usually you sort of 
get a gauge of how the encounter is going to go. I mean, cops are pretty good at reading people. Um, yeah. So if it's someone that's obviously lost in these directions, you know, you're going to try to point them in the right direction. You're not going to immediately start investigating and shine your flashlight in the back seat and see if they have any, you know, overdue library books. You're going to try to help them and get them where they need to go. At this point, do you think that the morale among law enforcement is good, bad, about the same as it's always been? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. I think that, you know, obviously it may vary from department to department. Um, I think cops have sort of, on a whole, felt to some extent under siege of late um, because some of the things that... uh, some of the media coverage, and you know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. But I, th- I think that morale would be helped if cops had a sense that people were more willing to give us the benefit of the doubt, if they were more willing to sort of hear our side of things, um, if they're more willing to just wait and and hear some of the facts that come out regarding, say, a, a controversial shooting before just making a snap judgment that the officers were wrong. You know, that people would be willing to do things like uh, attend a citizen police academy where they would uh, go through, um, you know, one of these shoot, don't shoot scenarios on a big computer screen. So they can kind of see what it's like, see how hard it is to tell the difference between a gun and a wallet when you're under stress and it's dark and people aren't listening to your commands. Um, Maybe just try to meet us halfway a bit more than I think the sense is that, that they're doing now. Yeah. We're in Hollywood right now. We're on the Paramount lot where they've made everything from Mannix to The Godfather. Mm -hmm. Just how bad are the inaccuracies of police work on television? (laughs) I sometimes find myself yelling at my screen because (laughs) what I see is not representative of any known police universe but you know, it's, it's we had CSIs carrying guns, right? I mean, right, and interrogating suspects, right? I mean, it's all you know. It, it's it's for entertainment purposes. It's, they don't purport to be police documentaries, but right. Uh, one of the things I think of when I watch Hollywood is uh, even the even the slightest of cops are always they're always kicking down doors with the with the one kick. Yeah, and that's uh, not as easy as it looks. No, is it? I, I, in fact, one time it took me uh, it took me twenty seven kicks to get through a door. <laughs> And uh, and I know that because my sergeant was right behind me and he was counting them out you know, as I went. He was very encouraging. Uh, but no, doors can be pretty hard to knock down. 27 times. Was this a metal door? Uh, it was a reinforced door, plus I was just coming off a lower back surgery, so I wasn't, uh, yeah. I wasn't at my peak performance. Yeah, it was good of your sergeant to step up and uh, help you out there. Well, he was, uh, you know, he's a supervisor. Yeah. When you see some of these things they do on television like, getting fingerprints off of things and getting DNA reports back yeah. during a commercial break. How long does it actually take to get DNA back? Well, I had a, uh, a burglary that, when I was in investigations, I had a burglary where uh, I submitted the DNA in, I think it was October, and I got the results back in August. And that was actually pretty quick. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, a lot of crime labs are sort of overwhelmed and overworked. And, you know, unless it's a homicide where they can fast track DNA, it might be one to three weeks. You're going to be waiting a while. Yeah. It's not quite like they do on television, right? No, no, there's no big fancy computer with swirly graphics that spits out the uh, offender's information immediately. 
Before we finish, you got to tell me about the dumbest criminal you've ever encountered. So, so many to choose from. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of the people that accidentally leave their driver's license at the crime scene. Um, that has happened to me on more than one occasion. Seriously? Yes, it happens. Um, there was a guy once uh, who, uh, who bought crack from a crack house and then uh, had a complaint about the quality of the drugs he had uh, obtained. So he, uh, he called the police to, to, to complain about this. To report yeah, the, the poor quality crack. Poor, poor quality crack, yeah. I told him that the, uh, he should report his uh, complaint to the Better Business Bureau. <laughs> they might be able yeah. to help him. Might be able to help him out. Yeah. Um, you know, you, a lot of the criminals that you deal with, you know, they're not living the high life. These are folks who might be homeless, they might be drug addicts. They don't put a lot of planning into things. So they might commit a crime right in front of crystal clear surveillance footage yeah. in front of six people who know them. You know, they don't think beyond, you know, the next five minutes. Yeah, I got a death threat from a guy in Atlanta one time. Several page letter, handwritten, margin to margin, top to bottom, about everything he was going to do to me. He thought I was talking to him through the screen. He sent the letter and he had one of those pre-printed return address labels that he stuck on there nicely and put the postage on there and sent it to me so i gave it to the fbi and they went by his house and sure enough there he was there packing was. <laughs> <laughs> he was packing to come from atlanta kick my ass, i guess not quite the uh the master criminal yeah no they don't think uh, far ahead sometimes well listen we've been talking to adam planninga we've been talking about 400 things cops know street smart lessons from a veteran patrolman Listen, this is a really good book to read. Not only is it entertaining and tell you things you don't know, but it'll tell you some things that will keep you safe, keep your neighborhood safe, and keep your kids safe as well. I wish we had more time because we haven't even covered 50 of the 400 things. So pick up the book and get the rest of it, and we'll be talking to Adam again in the future. So thanks so much. Thanks, and thank you, Dr. Phil. I know you've been a big supporter of law enforcement over the years, and my coworkers and I, uh, that means a lot to us. We appreciate well, that. I appreciate you saying that, and give them my best. We appreciate you guys standing in the gap, keeping the rest of us safe while we're home sleeping at night. We appreciate it. Thank you. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.